Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. New laws establishing a prescriber report card or requiring insurers to cover pain management alternatives are just a few of the issues addressed by new legislation enacted throughout the country to stop the opioid epidemic. Joining me today is Brian Allen, the Vice President of Government Affairs for the Pharmacy Solutions Team at Mitchell International. Brian is a nationally recognized policy expert who frequently advises lawmakers on the pharmaceutical industry, workers' compensation, as well as insurance issues. He provides insight into the new legislation and regulations in the industry. He also authors articles and blogs for the industry publications and frequently speaks at conferences across the country. I talk with Brian and ask him to share his thoughts on states who have passed the most innovative laws to address the opioid epidemic. So the opioid, in in the workers' comp space, opioids are a particular concern because a high percentage of injured workers receive opioids because of traumatic injuries they receive at work. And it's it's a much higher percentage than you would have in just your regular healthcare marketplace as far as people receiving prescription medications. And so it, we've seen this problem in the work comp space and the, and the, the opioid, you know, sort of the precursor of the opioid epidemic, epidemic, I guess, you know, for, for a number of years. And so we really started focusing in on it, you know, about eight years ago, really focusing. We've been talking to policymakers about it for probably 10 years, but it really got focused in on it about eight years ago. And um, what we've seen um, around the country are a number of efforts of late to really address the the opioid crisis. And I liken it to a river feeding a lake. And we have this lake of people out there who are addicted to opioids. And and it's a big lake. I mean, it's it's not a small lake. It's It's a really big lake. And there's a pretty significant river feeding that lake. And what we're seeing right now is some real effort around the country, and it started about three years ago in the Northeast, but we're seeing a real effort around the country where legislators are passing laws that limit the prescribing of opioids in the acute pain phase. And the acute pain phase is typically defined anywhere from 60 to 90 days, depending on which bill you look at around the country. And so in those early stages, they're really trying to get their hands around not over-prescribing opioids so that we don't keep feeding this lake of people who are suffering from addiction to opioids. And the bills are having an impact. Um, there is some data to suggest that in the states that have passed these, these bills that have been placed for a couple of years now, they're seeing a you know 10 to 20% reduction in the number of opioids being prescribed in their state. That's a significant reduction, still would provide for us a long way to go. But what we're now seeing is based because people are seeing sort of the results and they're they're looking really at 
a lot more innovative tools that can provide the healthcare industry, that provide physicians, to provide patients, to provide injured workers, these tools to help them manage their pain and, and really limit the kind of uh, opioid medication they're receiving. And, and we're actually seeing some pretty good results. And so, there, can you cite the, some the, of those? Brian? Really, some some of the yeah, tools. So, uh, that you... well, I think well when when we the the initial bills that came out were bills that uh, they had like a, a seven day prescribing limit. Now it's not a hard and fast limit. I mean there are there's and there are exceptions to the limit if you have um, you know if you're being treated for cancer pain. Uh, if you're in palliative care, if you're in, you know, uh, hospice care, they're not going to limit your your opioids in those situations. But if you're if it's an acute pain situation where, you know, you were at work, broke your arm, smashed a finger, whatever it might be, hurt your back, they're going to try to limit those prescriptions to. And it started out as a seven day limit. What we're seeing now this year, we're seeing three and you know and five day limits being uh, imposed by the various legislators, and that is really getting in line more with what the CDC at the federal level has been recommending uh, in the last couple of years. They're they're saying that really three to five days is kind of the maximum limit you should prescribe for an initial opioid prescription, and then you know take stock of it at that point, and if there's still pain rather than just providing medication to mask the pain, if they're still having pain at that point, they really ought to be looking into what are the, what are the real causes of the pain. And, and uh, in West Virginia added something to their bill this year that was really innovative. And that was, we're going to require insurers to pay for alternative forms of pain treatment. It's, it's not enough to say, you know, we're not going to, we want you to take away opioids, but you do have to provide those tools. And I think, I think requiring insurance companies to, to provide coverage for some of those alternative forms is, is appropriate because there has to be something to replace the opioids if you're not going to give them opioids. And so that, and there are some emerging uh, treatment out there for pain that we're seeing some real promise with right now uh, that, that involves really, a, it's a form of physical therapy where they're, they're, working the various injured parts of the body and, and getting them functioning again. And they're using the movement and the, and the, the, the skills of the physio, physical therapist to kind of work through the pain and get the person back to a place where they can function uh, and, and be not necessarily pain-free, but at least manage the pain without opioids. And, uh, you know, obviously we try to get them pain-free, but that all depends on the injury and the, and the person. Uh, so those are those are some things that we're seeing around the country that I think are pretty promising right now, and and we've seen an evolution in the policy just in three years. So people are watching this very closely around the country, and they're really trying to get their head around if we're serious about fixing this opioid epidemic, what are the things that we need to do to do that? And I think the West Virginia bill was really important to them because West Virginia has the highest rate per capita of opioid deaths in the country. So they have a big problem that they've been trying to wrestle with and they really took an aggressive approach and uh, really like a lot of the things that they're doing. The other things that are happening is we're, and I mean, I'm in Tennessee today and just finished up a conference and one of the initiatives here, uh, 
the um, Miss Tennessee, who's rain ends, I think, with this month. But over the last year, she has been um, out educating high school students and junior high students on the dangers of opioids. This is a young lady who lost her father and her brother to opioids. So she's had a real personal experience with this. So she's out really working with this, this, the, the youth to help them understand, you know, and that's really a critical component because many, many of the drug overdose with young people starts because they raided somebody's medicine cabinet and got this, these medications and they really didn't know what they had their hands around. And so they, that education process, and that's another thing that we're seeing in a lot of this legislation is there's a real aggressive campaign to educate the public and to educate the doctors. I know there's a proposal in uh, Massachusetts, and I think it was in Connecticut's proposal last year, where they were, um, they're requiring their medical schools to retool their curriculum when they're training new doctors to help them understand better how to manage opioids and how to manage pain without opioids. So those are all positive steps forward that we haven't really heard about, you know, in, in previous versions of the legislation. And you advocate for many of those. And, and so let's go back to the seven-day limit and starting off there and then squeezing it down to a three- to five-day uh, limit on prescriptions for opioids, which is seems to be the trend today. Is there a little bit of a concern that if you don't have the alternatives, really uh, great alternatives ready to go, what you're going to do with that policy is just force people to purchase in the streets illicit drugs? I haven't seen any studies where that's been indicated concretely. There's certainly some anecdotal evidence out there that when patients who are addicted to opioids, and we don't see it so much on the acute pain side, but when you have patients who have been on long-term opioids and they start getting weaned off of them, that they may shift to street drugs. The acute pain, which most of this legislation deals with, we don't see that same trend in those patients because they, most of those patients don't have the desire for it because they've never been on them long enough to create that sense of dependence. And so if you can limit them to just those first few days and get their pain managed more efficiently with other alternative forms of treatment, then you don't have them having that desire to shift to the street drugs because they're not getting medication that they think they need. The funny thing about opioids is, you know, you can, if you take them for a short term and, and you take the lowest effective dose possible, which is something else that, uh, that um, West Virginia put in their law, the thing that is that's helpful about that is that it doesn't create that, that sense of dependence. And, and so you don't, there's no real need for them to go to the street to get something that they don't really have a desire to have. And the other parts of some of the, and, and West Virginia did this as well, and a number of other states have done this, there's some real good patient education going on in this acute pain phase so that when the patients go in, the doctors are providing them information on the impacts of long-term use of opioids so that the patients themselves are becoming more aware that, hey, if I take this for more than these many days, I could have these problems. I could become addicted. And, and so that's all helpful. And I think that's a real, creating that awareness with the patients themselves is real positive because 
that's going to help them self-control their own use of the medication. So they're not going to overuse it, hopefully, and they're not going to keep demanding it because they know there's a risk if they do that. And so they're going to seek out ways to be engaged in their process of healing and really look to be more engaged in the alternative forms of treatment that are available to them so that they can heal better faster um, and that and, and really get past that pain that they're they're having from the initial injury so let's uh, can you outline some of those the specific alternatives for pain management that are being proposed and and written into the bill in like West Virginia and some of the other states yeah so they're they, and most of the time they're not prescribing the actual alternative forms of treatment in in many cases they're um, like in 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 Utah, I believe it was yeah, it was Utah last year. They passed legislation, and they part of that legislation was to study alternative forms of treatment and and for the Department of Health to gather information on what's working and what isn't working, and then to share that information with physicians. That's that, that so they're not really prescribing it because they're still trying to figure some of that out. What we've seen real promise with is some some. Uh, some pain-focused physical therapy um, that that looks to be pretty effective. We've seen acupuncture sort of coming into vogue. Um, that has been a real positive step forward. We've seen uh, a movement in some states where they've legalized medical marijuana to use that as an alternative to opioids. Um, I, I'm more interested in non drug therapy. Uh, I think that's better. <laughs> um, but that is, that's another option that's out there. And we, we really focus in on, you know, we're looking really at the, at the, at the, the physical therapy aspects of it and the acupuncture. And I think there'll be some other things that emerge as, as time goes on that, that become effective methods of treatment. One of the things I do know in talking with physicians who, who deal with traumatic injury most of them will tell you the very best thing for a patient to do when they have pain is to move their body and work get get their body working through the pain. What happens when you take an opioid is it really causes you to just sit on a couch and not want to do anything. So you're not able to kind of work your body through 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 the mechanisms that you need to do for it to heal itself. And so that's what the physical therapy does. And acupuncture, what that does is it actually can help you know, calm some of the nerve issues, and that that we're seeing some real problems with those. Um, those are probably the two areas that we see that are being most promoted right now. And I know there's a lot of research going on on other alternatives. So we're 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 hopeful that there will be new things that come out and new new treatments that emerge that are that are non-drug, but are very beneficial to the patient. Some of the other area that's showing some real promise is really just the psychosocial aspect of pain and managing your pain. And what they're finding is that a person's attitudes, their mental state about their pain, can have a real impact on how they manage it. Um, if they if they have this idea that they're going to be able to get through it and work through it and they have a positive attitude about it, they're able to kind of push themselves a little harder through that process of healing and, and not rely so much on the medication. They're finding that they have a, a more negative approach to it and they, they're very discouraged about it or have some real, you know, that's really bogging them down emotionally. 
that it's harder for them to get through the pain without medication right now. Those those studies are just coming out, and there's but it's showing some real promise, and I think there's some real opportunity there for uh, you know some some innovative treatment to help really manage the, the opioid problem. You know, when you legislate these, okay, the doctor uh, needs to be also uh, recommending alternatives. As just a point of, from a practical perspective, is that working? Do the, do the doctors embrace that? I mean, it seems as though it would be difficult to kind of legislate that and actually make it happen. So are you seeing something well, on your end where you can speak to that? Yeah, so the interesting thing about it is I talk to a lot of doctors, and many of them, many of the doctors I talk to, I mean, they they recognize that every time they write an opioid prescription now, that information is going into this, this, this prescription drug monitoring database. So they know that they're being watched, I guess, to a certain extent. So they're, they're most doctors are reluctant to, they don't want to get, too far afield of what recommended guidelines and practices are. They're sensitive to that because they have reputations, they have licenses, they want to protect, they, have, you know, they, they want to make sure they're doing the right things. And most doctors that I know are very responsible, they really want to try to do the right things for their patients. And so they, they make decisions based on the best information that they have available to them. So right now we have this new information about opioids and, and the recommendations are to limit the use of them. So the doctors are sensitive to that. As far as recommending alternate treatments, they do to the extent that they know what those treatments are. And that's one of the things I like about what they did in Utah, and that was to study what those, rec- what those alternates are and make that information available to physicians. Because if they don't know what they are, they're not going to be able to recommend them. So one of the things when you see these these things in legislation, they sound sometimes really good, but it really still requires the tools out there that the that, that doctors need so that if they're going to make a recommendation. Now, the nice part about it is because we live in a, a market-based economy, the people who have solutions that are working that are alternative, they're out marketing it. So their doctors become aware through the marketing practice that can be a good or a bad thing. I mean, that's how they became aware of opioids, and that kind of started a problem because they were given all the information that they probably should have gotten at the upfront back in the early, you know, in the mid-90s when opioids emerged on the scene. But I, I think as doctors responsibly look at the alternatives that are out there and, and they become aware of them, they're making those recommendations because none of them want to be on a list somewhere as an overprescriber. And one of the things, and so South Carolina passed a bill this year that's pretty comprehensive and has a lot of the things that are in West Virginia, not all of the West Virginia is pretty creative stuff. But one of the things that, that, that South Carolina has done is they're creating a report card for doctors. Now, it's not going to be a report card that's publicly seen. This can be a report card that the doctor gets that will rank them among their peers as how they're doing on opioid prescribing. And now, obviously, if you're a pain doctor and that's all you deal with, you're probably going to be a little higher than your peers, but you'll be able to measure yourself against other pain doctors. But for acute, you know, for like your orthopedic surgeon handling acute cases that isn't doing bad, you know, ongoing pain management, they're going to be able to measure themselves against their peers and they'll get a pretty good sense for where they're at in their prescribing practices. And it will also give the licensing boards information that they can use to help train doctors who may be struggling with how to manage the, the opioid prescribing in their own practice. So there, it's not meant to be a stick, but it's really meant to be an educational tool where they can help train these doctors and give them better information. And I think those are those all those things kind of help push 
doctors to like looking for there's alternatives because none of them want to be you know on a list that says hey you're a, you're a high prescriber sure how has the medical community in South Carolina responded to that Brian you know I, I the the medical community in general is supportive um, I will tell you that they recognize that this opioid crisis got away from everybody um, it really it didn't really hit the radar until it really became a huge huge problem uh, for, for at least for the general public consciousness some of us who work in this every day and, and look at trends we saw it coming you know 10 years ago eight years ago but it really hasn't been on the in the public consciousness but for the last three or four years and the doctors are sensitive to that and they're aware of that and they they really do want to be part of the solution. They don't want to be part of the problem. They don't want to be considered that they were ever part of the problem. And I don't think they ever, I, I think they were unwittingly a part of the problem because we just didn't have, we didn't really have all the information we needed to know about these drugs when they came onto the market. And um, whether or not the information was available, and I, that's a whole other issue, but for sure the doctors didn't know. So they're very supportive when these policy changes come out. They're engaged in the process. I mean, the doctors in all the states have good lobbies. They all have medical associations that lobby their legislatures. So they're very engaged in this process. And these bills don't pass without the blessing of the medical community, really. I mean, they've got to be on board because they know if the legislature knows if they pass these bills over the objections of the doctors, doctors just are not going to want to comply with the bill because they just are not, they're unhappy about them. But if you get them engaged in the process and they feel like they have ownership in that solution, there's there's a much higher li- degree of likelihood that they're gonna they're they're gonna follow through and comply with the with the suggested guidelines. And, and the thing that you have to understand about all of these bills, none of these bills have a hard stop where they say you absolutely cannot go past this time frame. Every one of these bills has an out for the doctor to say, if you're in your professional medical judgment, if you think you need to exceed these limits, you can, but you have to document those reasons in your medical history. And it's not that the state's going to start policing all these medical histories, but what that does is it, it creates, uh, it's like, it's the difference between a gate across the roadway and a speed bump. A gate says you can't go past this point. The speed bump just says, hey, you got to slow down and think about what you're doing. And so that speed bump causes these doctors to sit down and think about, okay, if I do this, my patient's still in pain, I have to now justify prescribing another opioid in my medical record. Can I really do that in my own, in my professional judgment? If my reputation is on, on the line, can I make that professional judgment and recommend that this patient receive an additional opioid prescription? And if they can, and they can document and justify it, then that's fine. But if they can't, it gives them an opportunity to really think about, is this really the right thing for this patient? Instead of just habitually writing a prescription because that's how they used to do it, now they're they're taking a pause. And I think this is a very positive thing. It's causing people to think about, why am I doing what I'm doing with this drug? And is it really the right thing to be doing at this time? Going back to West Virginia for just a second, one of the interesting things that I found in their uh, legislation that they recently passed was some of the onus is actually put back on the patient. Um, in, in this latest piece of legislation, it states that the patient agrees to obtain schedule medications from this prescriber and the patient agrees to fill the Schedule II prescriptions at a single pharmacy. 
and the patient also agrees to notify the prescriber within 24 hours if the patient obtains a scheduled medication from another prescriber as a result of an emergency. And then it says if they fail to honor the contract, the practitioner may terminate the patient-provider relationship or discontinue prescribing of scheduled medications. So that, that seems to be quite an innovation, don't you think? It is. I mean, the reality of it is in healthcare, you know, I, I, there, it, it's almost that we've come to expect sometimes in healthcare that as, a, as an individual that, that we go to the doctor, the doctor solves, solves our problem. The reality of it is we have responsibility to, to take care of ourselves, to take care of our body, to do the things that we need to do to help prevent having to go to the doctor. And then when we do have to go to the doctor, we still have a responsibility to do our part. I mean, if you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you can't have cake and ice cream every day. So what, in this particular context with opioids, if a patient truly understands the, the potential risks and truly understands the best ways they can manage that risk, and they're engaged in that process, it's going to reduce the likelihood that they become addicted to those drugs because they're going to have a better understanding of what those drugs can and can't do to them. I guarantee you that most of the people I know who are opioid addicts, they didn't start out saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take these drugs because I want to become an opioid addict. Nobody wanted to do that, but they didn't have the information they needed, and they weren't engaged in the process of why they were getting this medication because we've become so accustomed of we have an injury or illness, we go to the doctor, they give us a pill, we take it, and we're fine. Those days, and hopefully those days are going to get behind us, not just in pain management, but in all treatment of, of whatever disease or injury. We as individuals have to be engaged in our health care. We have to be engaged in that solution. It's, it's unfair to the doctors to put all the burden on them to manage outcomes if a patient isn't willing to help manage that outcome with the doctor. And the doctors, to get good outcomes, they really need patients who engage in their own care for that to happen. That's especially true when it comes to pain management and, tr and especially true when it comes to the use of opioids. You have to have patients who understand what those opioids can and can't do for them what the, and, the, and the risks, the significant risks associated with taking an opioid, and they need to know how to best manage that. So all of the things that West Virginia put in that bill are things that we see over time, we have seen over time, indicate a person is having a substance abuse problem, and that is they're doctor shopping, they're looking for a doctor who prescribed opioids, they're getting opioids from multiple prescribers who don't know what the other one is doing now that the prescription monitoring databases are helping with that. But the other thing that we've seen, and I know this, this sounds kind of crazy, but I've worked with addicts who will actually intentionally hurt themselves so that they can get an opioid. They will have their doctor telling them no, so they'll try to hurt themselves so they go to the emergency room and get it. So this, this, this requires them then to inform the doctor. So the doctor can start managing that kind of behavior now too, which I think is going to be a really positive step, especially for people who hit that sort of dependent and addicted state. And, and hopefully with all these controls we put in place, we see fewer and fewer people getting to that point, but they get that education, they get those controls in place and the doctors aren't you know, they're, they're limiting those prescriptions so they don't have patients that get to that point where they're going to hurt themselves to get the drug. Good to talk with you today, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and I wish you the best. We've been joined today by Brian Allen, who's the Vice President of Government Affairs for Mitchell International.
Mitchell International consults with policymakers on the best practices for addressing opioids in relation to workers' comp. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.